hi there and welcome to blaze explains episode two last time we spoke about remote working in depth and this week i'm gonna turn to ai artificial intelligence which is starting to crop up more and more in little ways in big ways and in ways that we largely don't seem to notice and this is another hallmark of our time it's something that affects us on a day-to-day basis and it's a massive massive topic and i think we are going to try to sort of skim over the key elements um, of the whole thing in in this episode then what i'm going to try to do is bring together a couple of experts that i can interview and we can have a bit of a back and forth about the ethics of ai about its future And certainly just listening to people who are very authoritative on the subjects, certainly when compared to me. And that should be interesting too. But we we will stick to the general overview in this episode and then we'll see how the rest does come out. So in this video, we will explore the concept in general. We'll also touch on the broad stroke elements of it as usual, kind of coming through with key statistics and observations and concepts. Uh, within artificial intelligence, as well as really the current state of affairs, its uses and history. And I think the key thing, the reason why we're looking at it it, is we better get to know it because the genie really is out of the bottle on this one. AI is out there. It is, it is rolling. We've got to kind of understand it if we're going to contend with its uses because, well, I'm not convinced that everybody is, is capable of contending with its uses. And I'm not sure that it's got anything to do with malice. I mean, you know, if you want to have the discussion about AI, you have to jump to, can robots take over? Okay, probably not, but robots, AI, uh, it, it, it's not nothing. It's, it's a major thing. It is arguably something that will actually change the way we evolve in terms of how it integrates with our life. A- augmented reality, virtual reality and artificial intelligence altogether opens up an incredible realm of possibilities, even goes into Internet of Things. But we'll try to keep it disciplined in terms of where we go. But we'll see. We'll see how I react as we go through each of the key points. Now, one thing to just bear in mind when you're going through is AI is instinctive as much as it is obvious. It is something that embeds itself in things we do by force of habit in in our daily lives. Now, two very interesting uses that I just want to point to before we get going that made me really think about it is rather than the obvious ones, computers making decisions, is uh, one company that a friend of mine works for, and the name escapes me, but I'll figure it out and we'll add a link in the description. What they do is they have a technology that when you call a customer service rep, it matches you based on your previous experiences and how they went with a customer service rep whose whose manner, perhaps accent, but I guess most importantly, their personality will match what you're looking for when you're in a position where where you're calling a customer service helpline. They'll remember that. And so that when you call another helpline, it will automatically pair you to someone who's going to calm you down, help resolve your issue, which I think is such a brilliant use of of artificial intelligence and a great way to kind of solve problems in a a fast and meaningful way. Then 
Another use of it is when you're writing your messages on Gmail, and this is where it comes in instinctive, it helps you finish a sentence. Now, writing actual text generation is a much more complicated thing. I don't think there's any risk of sort of writers being becoming any more unemployed than they generally are since the digital age took over. I think there's an adjustment going on, again, very much my area. And AI, I think, is really just an augmentation of what's already possible. It just means that it pushes the boundaries of what people's expectations are from a writer further. So I, I think it's a mistake to, to view it as a threat. I think it is very interesting to view it as a collaborative tool, although certainly it's going to change things very quickly. But for the purposes of this discussion, to think about how AI embeds itself into one's instinctive thinking. Now let's move on. AIpocalypse is what my uh, AP has helpfully titled this podcast. Not sure if I'm going to stick with that when we actually run the publication, because I, I think we have to have reasons to be positive, because as much as it is easy to be alarmist, what's the point? Nothing is ever quite so simple. So the history of artificial intelligence, history of AI, the first half of the 20th century, people kept thinking about smart machines. TV series such as The Wizard of Oz and Metropolis are a few examples. In 1950, Alan Turing published a paper on how to build an intelligent machine and how to test them. Look, Alan Turing, this is the father of artificial intelligence, certainly within the popular imagination. And I guess his um, rise to prominence really marks the beginning of this era when you start to look at it in a, in a historical context, you know, about the middle of the 20th century. It's his laws that, that, that have been laid down to guide how robotics can be good and, and where they should not be bad and how they should be conducted. And they're still very much referred to uh, by some as gospel. And um, that's where it begins. Now, the early development of AI happened in the 1950s, as the development of the computer happened earlier in the 1940s, an offshoot of the technological upswing during the Second World War. At first, Norbert Wiesner, Wiener sorry, theorized that intelligence behavior is the result of feeding mechanisms. The mechanism, he said, can be copied by a machine. It's interesting to look at how the original thought that would have gone into that programming but in 1955, Newell and Simon developed the first AI program, The Logic Theorist. The program representing each problem as a tree model would attempt to solve it by selecting the branch that would most likely result in the correct conclusion. Okay, so it's a decision. It's the idea of a decision coming away from the human choice into the transplanted human choice within the machine. And then artificial intelligence itself came from John McCarthy at the Dartmouth Summer Conference in 1956. So over a period of, of, I guess, you know, half a decade, we go from the very beginnings of a computer, almost to a point that most people would not have recognized it as such, to suddenly opening a possibility of, of where things can go. And then in 1957, up to sort of 74, so Cold War, massive investment again in advancement, uh, technology started to leap. Computer development grew really, really quickly. We're moving swiftly to the phase where you would end up having personal computers for the first time. Obviously, the ones created back then, you know, comparatively were just too weak to be able to process anything that would be considered highly intelligent 
information. And then everything changes in the 80s. Japanese invested highly in the fifth generation computer project or FGCP. Most goals weren't able to be met, but it marked a point in the history of AI, in the history of development. And then the 1990s to the 2000s were when scientists were finally able to create computers in the way we understand them today. Uh, one of the hallmarks of that time was Windows. So that's kind of what brings us into the new millennium. And then where it goes from here is really into the rapid acceleration of processes, the inclusion of consumer decisions of personal choice in internet algorithms and how that starts to affect the development of actual AI systems. But before we keep going, let's move on to what's called the Worley syndrome. The Worley syndrome is not a real thing. Wally's a movie about a clever robot. So what is the syndrome? It's a fear of a future dystopia where the planet is inhabited by people who are oblivious that they rely on technology for even the simplest task. If you look at the film Wally, the humans in it are enormously morbidly obese. They are plugged in effectively to their seats. They are served by robots. They exist to eat and watch and partake with the minimal amount of effort with all other processes taken over by our artificially intelligent beings. Now, Wally's, now that's a very sort of clear, clear example and slightly comedic one, but it is the theory of misaligned objectives. These are the objectives of AI to get us to be able to do absolutely nothing and be as lazy as possible. Or is it for us to create greater things? Now, if we do nothing, then perhaps we are vulnerable when things change and overly reliant to technology. But at the same time, our lives become a lot easier. And I think when you start to analyze, let's look at, you know, the, the, the capitalist system, which comes under a fair amount of scrutiny, but, you know, to be sort of give it, give it its due, capitalism effectively has, especially in the modern era, created the kind of wealth and advancement in healthcare that has allowed the, the global population to jump to 7 billion people because the babies aren't dying anymore, because you're able to get soap and shampoo out to people in the middle of nowhere. So they're less likely to die of disease. Uh, knowledge is spread. I mean, it's just, it, it's, we are in the numbers we are today because poverty, as we understood it, has changed. Our understanding of what poverty is has been completely transformed by the enormous wealth generated by capitalism and the application of it to relieve poverty and to relieve infant mortality and all these, all these issues. So generally speaking, the, the, you know, it, it's, it's not contestable that we are not better off than our grandparents. We are better off than our grandparents. There's no question, regardless of, of, of wealth. It's a question of, of, of life quality, just surviving was so much more difficult. We are able to control when we have kids. We are far, women are far less likely to die in childbirth. And there are social systems in place to take care of those children that are left out. But more to the point, it's health, it's nutrition. And it's the fact that now, today, because of capitalist systems, and I'm not trying to, this isn't a way to just I, I'm not trying to make this a philosophical point and make everybody disengage, but because of these systems, 
there are no famines anymore that are not man-made. It just doesn't happen, which is uh, it's, it's unbelievable when you think about that. And um, and that's because of the wealth that's been generated, the investment in fertilizer and the market that gets at that. But 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 to bring it back to the point is, it's not all good to have us. You know, that's one thing. But it's not all good to push this to the point where we actually do nothing. And that is the issue of the Wally syndrome. Is is it really a good thing that we become unbelievably lazy and just do absolutely nothing? Well, it's not a good thing. I think that's kind of obvious. A fear of a future dystopia where the planet is inhabited by people who rely on technology for even the simplest task. Right. Not a good thing. So in Wally, people don't even lift a finger to get their food. Now, can who's to blame? In a situation like that, where the objectives of AI lead to undesirable outcomes, who is to blame? Well, it's not the AI. The AI is programmed by authority to conduct tasks and to operate. It is designed to fulfill the objectives that it has been created and designed to do. So it is the creation of those objectives. The moral responsibility for it does not fall onto AI. And this is why the ethics of it will be so important is you, it has great capacity but it must be used properly and it has to be used ethically. And the fear is who's going to be able to use it ethically. Speaking of ethics, if you've ever seen the film Terminator, that brings it pretty heavily into question. Skynet, a machine designed by the human to safeguard the world, makes a misaligned analysis that it is a human being and that it is the biggest threat to the world. Classic Hollywood. It then starts to hunt down human beings. There we go. Target acquired, and then you can't do anything about it. This is where, to jump quickly forward away from Arnold Schwarzenegger and into the wars in Afghanistan, Yemen, and really the massive uptick in the use of the drone program that began um, uh, under Obama in favor of not engaging troops on the ground. There is... You know, these are unmanned aerial vehicles and now they're controlled more remotely. So, okay, there is a human touch to the destruction that they deal. But even within that, you know, they're evaluating criteria that are observed from above and mistakes are made and a lot of people die and a lot of hatred is created. And it doesn't desperately seem to solve that many problems other than being able to target and assassinate key leaders. But you also tend to kill a lot of other people and that tends to get ignored because at least you haven't got troops fighting on the ground because there's only there's a limit on how much footage you're going to get of a drone strike. The biggest threat to the world is that being automated or that capacity being automated in some form or another and then being let loose. But it is those who automate it and let it loose who bear the responsibility. So let's look at the world as it stands right now. The current situation of where objectives are, there's two situations that are not considered real, but we cannot help but fathom some current situations close to the wall or even the Terminator movie. The easiest example in the app, blah, sorry, the easiest example is the app Gojek. Okay, so I'm going to talk for a second about Gojek. Now, obviously, I worked in Indonesia and 
Gojek is an application that it does everything. It started with, you know, an Ojek was a motorcycle taxi that you'd use to get around town. While I was there, Gojek took over and, and it meant you had safe drivers. It had cheaper rates. You had fixed rates. You could order it from the app. Then they started to add Go Ticks, buy tickets, Go Play, buy, buy entertainment, Go Med. You could get medicines picked up, massage. You could get people to come over and give you a massage. You could get cleaners. You could get really everything and cars. And one of the first things they did was couriers. It was sending stuff back and forth in a city with the worst traffic in the world. So I used it every day. I got my food from it. I got my grocery shopping from it. I got my uh, pharmacy shopping from it. I got just basic tasks done by getting things sent back and forth. And then once they can go pay like Alipay in China, it's a payment system as well. And I get a discount. I don't even have to deal with cash anymore. It is so incredibly convenient. And I watched, you know, this take over the city and spread through the whole country. And, you know, they're so strong there that Uber came in and Uber, Uber, Uber left. They couldn't contend with them and also with Grab, which is another local rival. But Gojek's rise really kind of became a model for everybody to watch. I mean, I even used GoBox to move house. I have used it for just everything and it's worked every time. So now it solved a problem. The problem was for me to get my groceries, work, get home, go to the pharmacy, get my food would have taken me three days because it took, took two hours to get anywhere at peak hours to get anywhere during because the traffic was just so it's in, it's not conceivable to understand how bad the traffic was in Jakarta at this time unless you had lived there I mean imagine you have a 10 minute journey to work well that 10 minute journey is going to take you an hour because it's that time in the morning and if you make a wrong turn which does happen there's no pavement really for you to walk on and it's probably still just a bit too far but that left turn that that was came at the inopportune time just added an hour and a half to your journey and there is nothing you can do about it the word for traffic in Bahasa Indonesia is machet, which means stranded, actually. And that's the best word for it. You're stuck in it. You are stranded. You may as well be in the middle of a desert. Now, getting up, going to work, on the way back from work, on my phone, with my Gojek app, and I've just sorted out everything. This was inconceivable. And I'm coordinating the entire thing on my phone. By the time I'm at home, I've got one delivery guy, other delivery guy, next delivery guy, and I'm done. Go for a run. And all of my problems have been solved that day. And, you know, the difference with what was before and how difficult it was and the fact that it was all unregulated is suddenly everyone's very polite. They're all employees. They're all doing a good job and it's very, very reasonable and cheap. It, it, it changed, changes my life. Now, there really it was a necessity. It, it, it made life so much easier. It was incredible. Now, is this the situation where that wall envisages that allows us to have everything we want and then we sit and grow fat. Well, I think we have to take some responsibility. Yeah, you can do all that. And yes, you can sit and just order meal after meal and you can put on weight and you can not be fit or you use it to make yourself more efficient. I think there is an issue here of people dodging a bit of responsibility for what they could actually be doing themselves. So you could make sure that you go to the gym because guess what? You just managed to sort everything from your phone so you have more time. Suddenly you can go to the gym. It, you know, it's kind of not on them that, that you decide to sort of not do that. So I think once again, we end up in a situation where there is responsibility on the individual themselves in order to decide which direction this go. And it's not an issue of AI. Now, 
this is just an example of a use of technology. Artificial intelligence uh, is where the choices start to get taken away from us and where you start to get matched up to things. And it's really something that we're not going to go too hard into in the general discussions of how technology integrates with us in this podcast, because I'm going to leave that for when we really speak with actual experts in this field. But I'm just going to kind of keep taking you through how how I think about it. Now, another great example of the situation is the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. They conducted a test for recognition. It's a facial recognition software developed by Amazon. This was quite uh, famous, actually, for reasons that will become clear in a moment. But, you know, this is a public study. The result, 28 congressmen and women were misidentified as criminals. And this is largely an issue of actually when you end up trusting facial recognition software and you take action on it, it's quite worrying. A few weeks ago, my company, we shared a post and I sort of agreed with it, which was we're talking about how important it is to to manage the... Okay, sorry, we've got a little bit of stuff. Sorry, just had to pause there. You know, working from home, coronavirus, we've got to get a lot of stuff done kind of all, all within the same space and uh, just uh, had to shut, uh, shut an in-between door to sort of make sure that we had a bit of a clearer signal. And I do sorry, apologize if there is too much background noise. This this will not often be an issue. Anyway, on the story, we were talking about facial recognition software and when it goes wrong. Look, this is a situation where, you know, the applications of the law, right? You are trusting... And this is, we'll, we'll go on to the, in the area of, era of COVID, this is genuinely quite concerning because we're going to have to rely on this a lot. In the case of Robert Williams, which we shared, the police racial, facial recognition software identified him as a shoplifter and he was arrested based on that. And then when they arrested him, they sort of said, I'm not entirely sure why we're arresting you because I don't think it's you. But uh, we've got to do it because that's that's what the computer says. Well, I mean, he was released, obviously, because it wasn't him at all. And that, that could lead so quickly to an arrest, which, you know, for someone who hasn't done anything wrong and is not, you know, experienced with the law, is a traumatic event. It's not funny and it's not trivial. It's truly, truly not trivial. And people push to use this stuff. And... You know, in China, this is in massive use all the time. In airports, it's in use. And airports is an interesting one. But just be- before we step into that, I want to speak from, from the perspective of, of, of a media person. And, you know, y- you do want to worry about how AI media content is generated. And, and so my, our view on this is, look, AI is very important in terms of what it can do to help you cover situations where you can't staff a million reporters to go into the field anymore with the old model old model of overheads from pre-internet days. So you can extract a hell of a lot from from uh, from data using AI software to put it together, but you still have, need editorial control in order to put input the natural language generation so that it works and to check the output. So there's a level of involvement there. And that's kind of what our position on it is, is we offer that as well, is to um, make those options more affordable. We can do all that in between work so that uh, a client could then pay for very expensive AI, and which because you want the good one. But facial recognition software is a terrifying one because, you know, information is important and there's a ethical responsibilities 
that are sort of drilled into journalists. And as long as they're still managing what the output is, you learn to trust that source because people can decide not to trust that source of information if they decide to. Moving on, though, back to the police and the authority, when you're talking about a state, which is the, you know, it's the entity, I believe this is what Faber said, the entity that has the monopoly on the use of force within its territory. So they can actually take action against you. They can jail you. They can imprison you. They can even kill you under the right conditions. And they aren't making the decision, but the software is, and they aren't overviewing it and overseeing it and questioning it. Well, that is a serious, seriously scary position. And we already know that, you know, facial recognition software is in use by totalitarian governments all over the world, but it's in use by intelligence agencies. It's, it is, it's there already. Now, embedding it into our daily lives, well, this is something interesting that's coming as a result of COVID. COVID, the track and trace systems were giving up a lot of privacy, a lot of privacy. And, you know, for example, now, we already give up a lot, for example, when we go through an airport. So I don't think it's much of an issue there. But to speak about biometrics, when we think of biometrics for health, we think of temperature scanners and is someone coughing? But there are actually a lot more indicators and there's technology in the works um, that will be able to make airports pretty much seamless in and out. It'll tell very quickly whether or not you're sick through the current machines that are available, plus the technologies that are in development. It'll be a very effective way of policing it. And by making it very contact free also means there's going to be less opportunity for transition of, of disease. So that's interesting and that's a fair application. Here's the other one. Put them on every street corner of a city. Now we know where everyone is walking and we know why they're walking. We're doing it so we can track who was where so we can effectively shut down outbreaks of the virus. That's a hell of a lot. Now I get it. You know, you can't fault people for wanting to get a handle on this and figuring out how to do it. And maybe you can trust them to turn it off when there's not an outbreak going on or for have it to be stored in a blockchain and destroyed. But at the end of the day, things can be hacked. Data can be taken data that they thought was deleted is in fact archived. It's it's never quite clear. And we were already pre-COVID heading into uh, an era where big data, you know, the mass collection of data and the use of it, in this case, to make automated decisions in terms of how to market to people, but also how to find people, how to apply artific artificial intelligence software to massive data sets in order to predict the future and react to it accordingly for noble reasons, for financial reasons, budgetary reasons, goes all the way through to ignoble reasons. So it is very much an extension of the next technical innovation. The risk is things progress so quickly that you need to make sure you're really on top of it before you're too far down a road that's populated with malice to properly handle it. Fortunately, the case of Robert Williams was able to be fixed. He was let go. It was reported in the news. But the situation can be a lot more dangerous if it involves someone's life. What if someone's been identified as armed and dangerous? Now, looking for him, and he's killed three people and he's on the run and he's an experienced killer. You know it. And the facial recognition software spots a guy in a car driving down a motorway. He's got the face that matches. They don't, they have, don't have time to make a decision. The guy's a threat to everybody around him, as far as they know. And then they machine gun the car off the road or something like that. Because, or they pull him over. The guy rolls down the window to say hello, but 
someone overreacts, boom, dead. But it's a father of two who's never done a thing wrong in his life. That's the real fear. And this already happens with mistaken identity, just with description. So it happening because of an automated decision, that really is terrifying. Sorry again, I think every single episode, I'm going to end up having one of my alarms go off because dare I, I dare not go too far away from my phone in case I miss anything urgent from a client uh, and so on. So I do apologize for that, but hopefully it makes it more seem like the absent-minded person that I am, that I have to make sure I'm constantly checking myself so I don't miss a thing. The automotive industry is developing self-driving cars. This is another big story. Some companies already have these cars. And they're not 100% driverless, generally speaking, but a self-driving car made by Uber killed a pedestrian because it could not detect that they were there unless they were near a crosswalk. And I've got to imagine... You know, where is the place that a pedestrian's going to run the risk of being hit by a car? It's not going to be at a crosswalk. It's going to be at a not crosswalk. So everywhere else where they're kind of going to take you by surprise. And, you know, that's a pretty big error. And, you know, if we get to a point where there's enough driverless cars, the less people are being killed than human choice. That's a hell of a calculus. Okay, so 5,000 people died when there were drive cars with drivers. 2,000 people died when there were driverless cars. And is that an acceptable rate of death? This is the problem with when these, these decisions are left in the hands of tech companies. It's not, not knocking tech companies. They have responsibility to develop tech and they do a very good job of it. And it shapes the way that we function. It's created the ability for me to record this and have it produced from wherever I am to wherever my producer is and for it to be distributed. So no one, not knocking, but there is a massive ethical question here that, well, it's not clear who profits off because there's so much development needed that you don't want to do anything that's going to derail the development. And you can't really blame anybody for not wanting to derail the development. Well, we're not out to kill people. We're out to save people to get it done. But you can't hide it when someone gets killed. It's something that is really, really pretty obvious and so tragic. And this is where we kind of get brought back to the beginning of, of where objectives misalign. An error by a self-driving car leads to the death of someone. Now, the Terminator, jumping way back to that, is, you know, the cases that we've sort of mentioned, Robert Williams and the unfortunate death from the Uber car, they're not as severe as the Terminator where he just causes chaos wherever he, he goes. But if the operators, and this is the key thing, the human beings don't solve the problem immediately, they can move further down the road of misaligned objectives. And that is where the real danger is. If you don't address this immediately and have fail-safes in place, what happens if you drift slightly too far down the road, that you can't claw it back. And now there's something there that will cause, that has death within its DNA that is now out of control. And it's just simply gone too late. And that, you know, when the future moves as quickly as it does, you have to be really, really careful with what you do today. So that moves on to our next segment. AI, today and the future. Let me just have a sip of my coffee. 
And here's a quote from the uh, AI Oracle and venture capitalist, Dr. Kai Fu Li, 2018. Pulled it from built-in. AI is going to change the world more than anything in the history of mankind, more than electricity. Stop for a second. Number one, he's right. Number two, what I've always said when people have asked me is the single greatest invention in human history is the internet. It's not the wheel. It's not vaccines, although they're pretty great. It is, it's not the pasteurization of milk, but also a good thing. It is the internet. The reason is we had not even begun to appreciate the, the ability of the internet to shape our lives. It was still so early at the beginning of the journey. The internet of things has taken place, automating decisions on how energy flows in order to maximize its use and decrease emissions via artificial intelligence connected by the internet of things, bringing everything together. The big data that comes from it, building more AI on top of that. So I view the AI thing as it's going to change us. That's, I, I feel like AI is an extension of the internet, really, because for it to have this, for it to have this interconnectedness, I, I, I think they are kind of really part of the same family. And I think it's the offspring of the internet. That's what really makes it, it, it possible. So I completely agree. This is the biggest thing that has ever happened. And I think it's wrong to think of it just in terms of AI because it allows one to box it into that and think, well, it'll do this and or it won't and we'll sort of learn to handle it and deal with it. But I think if you have a look at it in terms of, look, this is the development of, of the internet. This is inevitable. This was going to happen in one way or another. We have to manage it. Just as we had to ma manage the internet, and I would argue that the internet was a lot worse a few years ago and it, people have been pushed onto the dark web in terms of people are starting to react to things by realizing they needed to make the decisions quicker. So I actually think that we might be in a better position with AI in that as it develops more, we already have that lesson in our back pocket. We just have to make sure the right people are hearing it and applying it. The impact of AI on our future has already started today. There's no industry that hasn't been affected by it. Whether the AI level is just data collection, up to smart analysis. Look, AI data collection analysis is available actually to pretty much anybody. Anybody can look at their usage of software services and, and have built in analytics. If you have a website, you have Google Analytics and you can learn so much. You can make decisions. You can put decisions in place to be automated. You can uh, handle advertising bidding when you're hand handling an online marketing campaign. But there are really big applications of AI in, in key industries. So one, transportation, autonomous cars, ride-hailing apps. So there's Uber. So there's uh, Get or, or, or Taxi App or Grab or Gojek or uh, Lyft. There's, I say within that courier systems too, manufacturing, AI machines, robots, the production line, also cars. We already had that before, but you know, that, that can keep going. And that's a, a massive thing. It changes every day. It's been changing for years as a result of that. Healthcare, virtual nurse, assistant, assisting patients, getting prescriptions delivered, being matched with the right doctor for your condition. You could end up having at-home biometric scans to speed up patient processing, especially when you don't want to have too many people in the hospital unnecessarily because of COVID. You save a lot of time on referrals. Point of care can be at home. 
and can be handled by artificial intelligence. Now, education, digitized book, virtual tutors. You know, especially when you're talking about kids' education, let's say you set up a series of multi-choice questions that is explored. If you ever played a video game where you, or I can't remember what the name of the books were, but it used to be that you you choose a desired outcome when you're reading a book and you say, turn to page 88 for that. And you turn to page 88 and you see how it goes and you might die. And then you go back to the beginning. And I, I can't remember what they're called, but in in uh, there's also a game for Telltale Telltale games where they, they have stories themed from something like Game of Thrones, just within the world of Game of Thrones. And your choices affect how your story goes. And in video games, it's like you choose your responses and you make decisions that affect the outcome, you know, and you could do that with education, especially when you're talking about younger kids, is their outcome is determined by the choices that they make. So the tutor, a virtual tutor, can turn and focus on that. And that's someone that can be applied to everybody. And if perhaps a kinder sounding, gentle voiced teacher is more appropriate for that child, it can make that decision too by figuring out that they're more responsive to it. Either they're faster in choosing or they're better in their decision making when they choose. And then someone else might react better to a harsh, a sort of more clipped, stricter tone from another virtual tutor. And it could vary from subject to subject. And it's a constant process. By learning the way that people learn, you develop greater knowledge of who they are as a person so you can teach them better, which is brilliant. But at the same time, what an extraordinary amount of data and insight that you can gather on an individual who is a child. And what are the ethics involved there? And are we supposed to scratch all that or are we supposed to use it in the future when we want to market to them? And then the final thing on education is digitizing a book. It's the same thing. You, you, you digitize a book, you have a learning experience. You learn how someone is guiding themselves through the book, how someone is learning. And wouldn't that be extraordinarily useful. I mean, in terms of upskilling, which is something everybody's going to have to do all the time, the economy is moving so fast, applications of AI move to something else, you need to be able to constantly reapply and readjust your skill set to be able to stay on top of everything. But you know, that also means that, again, if you are a smart, diligent person, or you're good at a certain type of thing, it doesn't matter whether or not you're uh, the best at ever, you'll actually be able to, you know, the same skills, I'll put it this way, if you're a lumberjack 5,000 years ago, you chopped down trees. Now, you had a very different set of tools, you had a different set of requirements, you had a different whatever. Now, you might end up being a today a construction manager or a, a football team manager because you're kind of applying the same thought processes but in a different way with a different skill set because your managerial style is very focused on productivity and knocking down objectives as they go. And you're a very objectives-driven guy and that's how you run your team. And so th th there's, I think it's important to remember that this is all very good in that as AI progresses our economy and our, our world further, so we can progress and apply our human brilliance and uniqueness and individual talent and application through it, however we do. So I don't think one should despair. I think there's two sides of it. And okay, media. <clears throat> and then there's media. Uh, Bloomberg uses, well, computers to help make sense of complex financial reports. And that is what Bloomberg has. Interesting. 
as uh, you know, in the COVID crisis, wire services, these press services have been absolutely decimated because people have said, right, well, we need to cut our costs and that's a very quick one. Boom, not paying for uh, Nikkei Asian Review, not paying for New York Times syndication. I mean, obviously they're their own publishing thing, but Reuters, so on. But Bloomberg's been all right because I think those who, you know, if you're going to use Bloomberg, Bloomberg allows you to um, just talk about media. You know, it gives you access to sort of a kind of financial machine that you just would never have otherwise. And if you have a Bloomberg terminal in your office, you're still going to need it. So you know, they've done okay, but you know that technology is just incredibly important now. Associated Press employs the natural language abilities of automated insights to produce 3,700 earning report stories per year. Well, I know quite a lot actually about this, and yes, they do. And but natural language generation, there's humans involved in this process in order to make sure it meets the actual standards of quality that one needs. Customer service. Google is working with the AI system to schedule appointments, make reservations, etc. Well, if you've been on most websites, major tech websites recently, there are reasonably effective AI assistants before you get through to a person, but they do help you kind of direct where you're going. And I find that when they in use by banks, that's very good as well, especially the sort of modern digital bank accounts. Very, very useful indeed. And I mentioned that technology earlier, and I'll have to remember and find out the name of that company, and I will give them a proper shout out and to Harry Williams over there in their creative department. Rockwell and Yoha from Harvard says the future will most likely see AI language as the next big thing. It's already underway. The real life Babelfish, the customer service call center now uses machines and the system to great, to greet customers before redirecting them to human beings if necessary. That already happens. They speak to us. They, although, I mean, yes, it's artificial intelligence, but again, it's natural language. You're putting it in order because someone's, someone has ordered it. And so it, it, it's not too much of a leap. It's almost just a, it looks like it. It looks more like artificial intelligence than it really is. It, it is, well, I've just put the sentence in order. I'm just use. I'm applying the skill in a different way. Harvard says driverless cars will mo- most likely be ready for the public soon. But in general, we can expect machines to surpass human cognitive intelligence in all tasks in the next few years, which even see robots, which we've seen in robots in the movies. Now, it's interesting. Yes. Okay. They surpass our intelligence for tasks. A, a mathematical sort of computer that can do incredibly complex mathematical work can, you know, is unbeatable in terms of that, but you still need mathematicians because uh, you, you still need the ability to think. You need the ability to apply that thought. You need the ability to create it, to direct it. But having said that, there's no question AI is going to change the world entirely. Leaders will need to know how, learn how AI works and prepare employees and people along the way. You have to upskill people. We've kind of mentioned that already. Retrain and hire people for new jobs that come from AI. So it is a question of society adjusting as opposed to being wiped out. Schools and parents will need to teach the kids skills for both STEM and creativity, as well as the ability to learn new stuff. We spoke about this. I spoke about this and about how the tragedy of of the humanities being sort of made very easy at a lot of universities and studies so that people can kind of game the system, learn by rote and pass. Of course, it's not quite as simple as that. It doesn't actually make you good. It doesn't make you a, a good debater, a good formulator of arguments, of thought. 
And I think the phrase I use is, what is the point of being a brilliant mathematician if you can't string a sentence together? You just get hammered by someone who's actually good at it. You can't, and you know, then there's the thought of, well, no, our way of handling ethics is we're going to shut everybody down. Okay, well, when that doesn't work, you can't defend your ideas because you're not going to be equipped to. You're not able to even properly vet your ideas. And this is the real problem, is because people have not really been challenged to actually think critically. They've been told that there's a certain way in order to get the grade, which is copy what the professor thinks and the press will tell you, and then it'll get you the grade you're not. I hear this when you see tech companies address ethical questions. They'll answer the question, giving a stock answer clearly cr that's come straight out of the mouth of a teaching assistant from when they were at university. And they genuinely think they've answered the question, which means not only do they not know, Nobody in the company seems to know, and they just don't understand. And and I and I feel like you know. And obviously, there's. I don't condone any kind of abuse, and I don't believe in total. I I, I like that you know. I don't hate speech is an appalling thing that should be should be. You know, pursued and shut down. It's awful, but I'm sort of slightly skeptical of sort of Facebook employees you know, calling out their company's policy. The, the company appears to me to be just conceptually, they're trying to stick by free speech, which is difficult. It's a difficult thing to stick by, but it's a wonderful thing. It's it, it's what guarantees people's freedom. And it's very nasty when people say awful things and it should not be accepted or praised, but they're trying to not censor people, at least to a degree. And that's a noble thing, actually. And um, it's being misportrayed, and I, 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 I think that's completely unfair. And funnily enough, you know, Facebook has plenty of other ethical questions that we can throw at them. And I've certainly felt, you know, that at times they've given stock answers that just sound exactly as I've described, like someone who's repeating what they heard their TA said, and they genuinely think they've answered the question, and they haven't. They haven't even come close. And however, that is a respectable stand. You know, it's fair. It's a fair stand to take which is, no, we are not, we are going to preserve the dignity of a freedom of speech here, even when it's uncomfortable. And I think, you know, they, they can recruit such sort of smart and brilliant people from all over the world because they can, and they can attract them in with, with the prestige and, and the salary and the connections that will come out of it. And then those, so many of those people can sort of be so narrow-minded in their thinking. It means they haven't been challenged. It means they haven't been challenged in how they think. And this is, you know, w w what my conclusions will largely be, and this is why I'm going to have a whole other thing interviewing uh, a guest about the ethics of AI, is, is to really hash this out because this is a problem. And we need to be ready for it because it's going to change the world. Stuart Russell, an AI expert, wrote for the New York Times that the arrival of superhuman machine intelligence would be the biggest thing that ever happened. But to avoid the catastrophe, humans must make sure that the machine being developed is in line in principles and objectives with our goals and should not be certain of its objective. Certainty within a machine. Now that's worry. There must be doubt. If they are going to actually be able to execute decisions on our behalf, they must have our capacity for doubt somehow catered for, even if it's just in order to reference to us. Now, some experts disagree that, well, with this theory. So Stuart Russell, this uh, AI expert, 
said the arrival of a superhuman machine intelligence would be the biggest thing that had ever happened to humanity, period. And so humans have to make sure that it's in line with their principles and objectives. But not everybody agrees with that. I mean, it's a hell of a bold claim. I think when you start to consider, you know, the way that humans need to integrate with AI for it to work properly, it's, you know, you, you get into a, you get into embedding processes where for the thing to be effective, you need that human interaction anyway. And so it's not, it's, it, it, it's like, how are you going to adjust it for the world and for the needs? Because it's going to, it, it's useless if you can't adjust it. I put it this way. You can build a super intelligent mach machine, but if you can't direct it and adjust it, it's a big waste of time. So why would you create one that you can't develop and adjust and control in order to do the work that you want it to do in the way that you want it to do it with the principles that you want to be able to apply? And there's also no way that once you start getting into these questions, you're going to need some seriously brilliant people from all sorts of of, of sides of the political spectrum to be able to give you a credible ability to employ it. Because even though the world is becoming more, more polarized, if you start putting a massive superhuman machine in play that makes massive amounts of decisions that have consequences, you are instantly going to see the effects of those. And it's going to be clear if you say have too many right wing people or too many left wing people, you don't have a proper balance. It hasn't been thought, thought through the, the intelligence level is, is, is not high enough of the people involved. It should immediately be clear, actually. So now here's a big question. Will AI replace human beings completely? It might. Well, maybe. AI can work faster and it's already being used to make manual repetitive jobs automatic. And it has been for a bit. So you can forecast the biggest businesses in the coming decades are going to be AI focused. I think they're going to be software focused as well. I think most things are going that way. But, you know, they're still businesses. They're still run by people. But in 2030, AI is projected to contribute more to global GDP than the output from China and India combined. So, yeah, a lot. But those who can up their skills and learn new ones would still be needed. Like AI can work faster and it's already used to make manual repetitive jobs automatic. So it might replace human beings. It'll be the biggest business in the coming decades. In 2030, AI is projected to contribute more to global GDP than the output from China and India combined. And this uh, information is from PricewaterhouseCoopers, the uh, massive accountancy firm consultancy. But if you can upskill and learn new ones that are needed, AI creates new positions that will be safe. And that's the key thing. The economy is changing. The world changes. So we must change with it. Now, a merchant 600 years ago did different things as a, a, a merchant today, because many of those functions are now automated or protected. However, ultimately, you're doing the same thing and it's the same kind of person that's going to do it. You just have to learn the ropes. You learn the ropes of what it is that you're now going to do. So what the key thing is, you make sure you're learning the ropes. You can't and be, you can't be annoyed that, well, I have a hand. I, I'm sure this probably is a bad example, but let's just say, well, I learned how to use a single-handed axe to chop some wood. So why should I use this electric saw? Well, but it's a lot more efficient and we're not going to pay you to do it with the axe. Yeah, well, I want to use the axe. Well, well, you can do one then because why, why would you be difficult about that? I think that's the question is, and this is kind of where the, you know, the sort of fear of change that people have and, oh, it'll be, it'll be awful. Why would you protect, protect the ability for you to work when you're supposed to be working efficiently 
for the same rate of pay to use a handheld axe when we're providing an automatic one here that you could also use and just oversee because you're going to understand about safety and we're going to need that and just learn how to operate it. Well, I don't want to learn something new. Why can't I do this? And this is kind of where the question of unions can be a bit difficult is sort of you make industries very inefficient and they fall behind. And it's going to be a big mistake to do that in the era of AI because people have got to learn. And so you can stay competitive. You can't live in a bubble. We, regardless of what happens with COVID, we're still in a global economy. You can't live in that bubble. And that's a very hard lesson to learn if you do not have the awareness to make sure of it right now. Now, 10 years ago, you could hardly know, most people hardly knew what an SEO expert was or a social media manager. Hardly anybody was recruiting for them. However, if you ever go on a job website in a major city, the amount of people that are asking for social media managers is outrageous. There are, there is so sought after. Most companies need them. Pretty much any company. You, you, it's, it's almost irresponsible not to do it. And to do it badly is even worse. These are examples of how AI can create new jobs while eliminating old ones. Now, this requires you to study and learn about how social media works and how these things kind of can be applied. Now, SEO, for example, is something that could be outsourced to AI technologies for them to do. But here's the thing. Even though there are many areas that AI will excel in, there are also many where human beings will thrive more than any machine. You need to be individualistic. You need to be interesting. You need to be smart. You need to be self-improving. You know, artists, PR, HR managers, any other field that requires sympathy, experience, skills, charm, in short, all jobs that need human touch are yet to be automated. Here really is the thing. It's easy, for example, to put a massive business deal to. You want to sell a bunch of stuff in Mongolia and ship it to the United States and sell it there. You've got a guy in Mongolia, you've got the guy in between, you've got the guy buying it in the States. As you get close, and it's a simple thing, buy, ship over, you know, have it dr driven in trucks to a port onto the ship brought to the States, driven to thing. But to get from there to there, as you get closer to it, even though it's a simple deal and you do all the due diligence and everything, people get shaky. Trust, you need people to be able to win those people over, to keep them steady, to keep them on course when there's something that big and that important involved. And everybody's trusting everybody else. It's no mean feat. It's seriously, seriously difficult and you better be good with people. AI can't do that. Now, you could argue, oh, yeah, but you can just agree. Well, that's a, that's a theoretical argument. Yeah, you could agree, but it's still an important relationship to have. And it's still not going to be viable in the long term for you to do that when you're talking about things that are going to, that, that are going to change how a business, the fortunes of a business. You need that capability. And finally, we're just going to touch on ethics, ethical questions from AI. Okay, Justin, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end it here and I'm gonna use this as an, as an intro to the, to the interview piece. Well, look, I, I hope you enjoyed that. I pushed through. It's a dense topic. You have to touch on the ways in which AI can be applied, the ways in which it can be abused. And really, we've now laid the groundwork for the discussion of the ethics that we are going to have a panel of experts. We're gonna, figure out what is good about AI, 
what is bad about it and what the risks are and what the problems associated with those risks are. Should we treat AI as something different? And should we treat it human? That'll be coming to you in a later episode. Thanks again for listening. Give me feedback. This uh, one went in a bit more of a different direction uh, than it did the first time. But I've certainly enjoyed doing it and trying to tackle this for you listeners. Once again, reporting from my guest bedroom, which is probably the best for sound right now. It's Blaze Hope. I tried to explain AI. I hope you understood it.